The following message is by Dr. Ryan Glomsford from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Almighty God, gracious Father, we... Lift our voices to sing uh, your praises, and we give you honor and glory, looking to Christ, who is our Lord and our Redeemer, who is our King, and who is, uh, in fact, the tie who binds. We ask that you uh, bind us together in unity because of his work uh, accomplished and applied by your Holy Spirit. We give thanks that you've called us by grace to be your children. We ask your blessing now uh, as we... Read and consider your word, which is always useful for encouragement, for building us up in faith and hope and love, uh, and for teaching and instructing and even correcting and admonishing us in our way. We ask this time would be fruitful uh, and honoring to you, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've uh, brought your Bible, please turn to the book of Galatians, we will be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, uh, considering especially verses 11 to 14 this morning. Galatians 2, then... After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Well, we return this morning to our study of the book of Galatians after, uh, let's call it a pregnant pause during a convocation week, but we arrive here at a moment of real conflict and real tension uh, among the apostleship uh, itself. This is the place towards which Paul has been moving and for which he's been preparing his, uh, his readers Thus far in the epistle, a number of things have been established. Paul, the servant of Christ, opened the letter with a note of real astonishment and more than a little concern and frustration that the churches in Galatia were so easily turning from Christ and from the gospel. There's no beating around the bush in this epistle because Paul makes it clear that he's not a people pleaser. He, in fact, is not writing uh, under the influence of any, uh, of any teachers because he received his uh, apostleship directly from, from Christ uh, himself. In fact, it's only after, as we've seen, uh, after this encounter with Christ, he goes to meet with the leaders of the church and has his apostleship confirmed uh, and has extended the, the right hand of the fellowship. So while this letter is, is written to all the churches in, in Galatia, in our passage this morning, there's an episode here in the, in the life of the church that plays out uh, in, in Antioch. Antioch was a, a city with a promising beginning. We know from Acts that it was the place where the disciples were first called uh, Christians. And in fact, there was a thriving church here, uh, no doubt in part because Paul and Barnabas had been sent by the church leaders uh, to preach the gospel among the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's especially the Gentiles here uh, who were turning to Christ in, in greater and greater numbers. Until, that is, certain troublemakers uh, arrive. Likely the very same who hounded Paul uh, throughout his ministry. But they arrive and they begin to cause problems for uh, the church in Antioch. Even though Paul is willing to be a, a chameleon for Christ and to be all things to all people. Here in this passage, we see uh, Paul with more than a little indignation, uh, more than a little upset. We see Paul bold and courageous, uh, standing strong for the church uh, and defending the integrity of, of, of the gospel ministry. So this morning, we'll, we'll consider together uh, verses 11 to 14, this uh, dramatic sort of climax of the personal narrative in Galatians, right before we turn to a doctrinal uh, exposition uh, and, and then finally exhortation. It's a place where life uh, unavoidably intersects uh, with doctrine. And we'll consider this uh, in three points. I'm told that good chapel devotions uh, have three points and, and if possible use alliteration. And so my three points are uh, the wrong, the rebuke, and the restoration. I know you're saying, well, that's not really alliteration, but 
I hear uh, chapel outlines in a Scottish accent, and so if you roll the R, uh, I think by the Scottish rule of alliteration, uh, we, ha we, have, uh, we, we have a good outline. Well, considering first uh, the wrong, looking, looking back at Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it, it's interesting to note that Paul two times mentions that both he and Peter had been entrusted with the gospel ministry. Uh, and in fact, Peter had already met, uh, Paul had already met with Peter, uh, and they'd agreed on a division of labor. Uh, Paul to the, to the Greeks, Peter to, uh, to the Jews. This is not two gospels, two ways of salvation, but a division of labor. They are co-laborers uh, in one ministry uh, and, in one, and in one gospel. And this is how Peter and Paul begin their relationship. And to understand what follows in Antioch, we have to note the before in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, uh, Peter, he, was eating with Gentiles. In other words, Peter began by doing right by his apostolic commission. Uh, he began uh, having learned from his dream in Joppa that uh, the table fellowship was open, uh, that in fact God's mercies had widened to include uh, even the Gentiles. And so it's a promising beginning. Peter here is in, in full fellowship with all of his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's eating with the Gentiles just as, as gospel freedom uh, entails. Peter knew that the dietary laws and so forth uh, served a temporary purpose and were fulfilled in Christ, um, that, that there was now no longer any distinction between, between Jew and Gentile. But no sooner than he began eating did critics arise, uh, upset by the expansiveness uh, of God's mercy, and they began criticizing Peter. And we know from Acts chapter 11 that initially Peter met their criticisms with a, a noble defense uh, of the gospel. And so Peter began well. So it, it's very surprising having learned two times that, that Peter also has an, apostle, uh, an apostleship to, to the Jews, that here, having, having known the truth and having lived according to the truth, uh, he collapses uh, so completely uh, in, in the face of these certain men from James. Well, Peter's offense uh, later in verse 12 was that he drew back. Uh, he refused to eat with the Gentiles. And he feared the circumcision party. He refused tableship, table fellowship uh, with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know from verse 14 that what Peter was doing uh, was not, what Peter was doing wrong was not what he was preaching, but what, but what he was doing. His problem was really where theology and life uh, intersect. Because verse 14 ma makes it plain that Paul saw that Peter's life was not, in, his conduct was not in step uh, with the truth of the gospel. Peter was sending mixed messages uh, by his actions. He was thumbing his nose at those inside the church because of pressure uh, from those outside. He was, even worse, confusing uh, the word preached in the gospel ministry because of the witness of his life, leading some to wonder uh, if, in fact, uh, justification did come by, by works of the law, uh, particularly uh, as it had to do with circumcision and Jew-Gentile relations. 
uh, and food laws. Peter was, by, by his action, in effect, rebuilding the dividing wall uh, between Jews and Greeks. Uh, and so rebuke uh, was certainly uh, in order. Although I think, yes, Peter was wronging uh, the Gentiles in his actions. He, he was, in effect, saying that the Gentiles were, were second-class Christians uh, unless they begin uh, to keep the law. But I think what's particularly uh, egregious about Peter's mistake here is that he was supposed to be the apostle to the Jews. If anyone was sort of especially equipped and having set himself apart to do apologetics uh, with the Jews, if anyone was supposed to have seen and maybe intercepted uh, the certain men from James, it, it, it would have been Peter. This, after all, were the, were the folks to whom he was dedicated uh, to go and, and bring gospel ministry. But Peter couldn't preach uh, or defend the gospel because he'd, he'd withdrawn himself to hide. And it was for this reason that, uh, in verse 11, Peter stood condemned and, and required rebuke, which Paul uh, offered to Peter's face and, and in public. Now, Calvin, I think, is, is helpful here because Paul had to act. Paul had to insert himself into this uh, situation because of Peter's hypocrisy. And so he, he brought a stern warning, and, and as it says, he set himself in opposition uh, to Peter. But Calvin says that Paul did not simply re- reprove Peter uh, as one Christian would another, but he did uh, officially by right of his apostolic office. And this probably accounts for the public nature uh, of this confrontation. Because Calvin goes on to say that it's especially in instances like this when someone has sinned publicly that a public rebuke is in order because Calvin says uh, so that unpunished sins won't harm the rest of the body by way of example. And this makes sense because we see in verses uh, 13 that already others are being led astray. In fact, uh, by Peter's example, the rest of the Jews in verse 13 acted hypocritically. And along with them, even, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, Paul's faithful sidekick. So Peter uh, is rebuked by Paul with, with a question uh, in the end of verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I don't know if that strikes you as a riddle initially, but it certainly is, is, no, is no riddle. It's a, a question that cuts right to the heart of Peter's hypocrisy. Uh, it ties up Peter with a question that he couldn't very well answer. Because Paul's implicitly blaming Peter here for doing an injustice to the Gentiles by forcing them to keep the very law that he himself, uh, from which he, he himself wished to be exempted. Paul here, in his rebuke, stands on, on a solid gospel foundation. When theology informs life, we'll learn in the rest of the book, uh, especially from justification in the, in the next pericope, that there's a freedom that's entailed. In fact, this whole chapter uh, and these next few chapters are moving towards 
uh, chapter 5, verse 1, for it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. In fact, if I were to add a sub-point using our Scottish rule of alliteration, we would add for freedom and, and roll the R, and we'd have another, another R point. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Christ came into the world to be the perfect fulfillment of all the shadows and types. Christ put aside death, sin, the devil, and of course puts aside all divisions as well. Because even though justification can't be reduced to cultural boundaries, it certainly uh, is, is a doctrine with huge ramifications for the shape and character of the body of Christ. And so we think of Ephesians 2, where Paul reminds us that in Christ, the Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father as fellow citizens uh, with the saints and members of the household uh, of God. So it's on this foundation which will take three more chapters uh, for Paul to unfold that Peter uh, is rebuked by Paul by authority of Paul's apostolic office. And so Paul protects the, the church and the integrity of the gospel. Well, finally, the restoration We certainly learn uh, about Paul's courage uh, and the importance of the peace and unity of the church as something to be prayed for, something to be sought for earnestly, something to be defended uh, boldly, if need be. But what about Peter's failure of courage here? What about Peter's failure of of conduct? What do we learn uh, from that? And here I close with a quote from Luther, who in his commentary offers, I think, a a brilliant pastoral insight into why this example of Peter's failure is is recorded for us. Luther writes, such examples are written for our consolation, for it's a great comfort to us, says Luther, when we hear that even great saints who have the Spirit of God do sin. Samson, David, and many other excellent men full of the Holy Spirit fell into great sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah were weary of their life and deserved death. The scriptures describe such errors and offenses of the saints to comfort those who are afflicted and oppressed with despair and for the terror of the proud. No one has ever fallen so badly that he cannot rise again. And no one, on the other hand, is so sure-footed that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he rose again, I too may rise again. Faint hearts and tender consciences should make the most of examples such as these, that they may, be better under, that they may better understand what we pray for when we say, forgive us our trespasses, and I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So let us, uh, when we fear and when we falter and when we shrink back, uh, accept uh, 
reproach, accept correction, uh, and look to the cross that we, like Peter, uh, may be restored uh, by the same faithful Savior. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, through Christ our Lord, we've died to the law. You've canceled the record of debt that stood against us and given us a righteousness not our own, for which we thank you. We thank you for his burden-lifting death and his death-conquering resurrection. Forgive us our trespasses, uh, we pray, for we were crucified with him. And it's no longer our old selves who live, but Christ who lives in us. Make our weak knees strong, we pray, to make us bold like lions, uh, able to shake off fear of those who would keep scorn upon your gospel and upon your church. We pray, establish your church by faithful gospel preaching. Be with us uh, the rest of this day. Bear with our infirmities for for Christ's sake and conform us more and more by your spirit uh, into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray and for his glory that we pray. Uh, Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.